so excited today, more than usual, because our guest, John Cochran of the Hoover Institute, is not only a world famous economist, but easily my favorite professor when I was in college at the University of Chicago. So I still find it hard to think of him as being elsewhere since he epitomized the Chicago culture so well for me in terms of just making it fun for students to come to class because every day you would discover that something you found, thought was going to be incredibly hard, like econometrics, was actually fun and exciting. So here we are uh, multiple decades later, and I am hoping that John will help us understand the world of sovereign debt that Mark and I are supposedly experts in, but have decided over the past couple of years that we don't really understand anything about it. But regardless, uh, welcome, John. Thank you so much for making uh, time for us. Uh, thank you. It's it's a pleasure. Uh, yes, Chicago is deep in my blood as it is in yours. Hard, hard to get it out. And I, I hope to learn from you guys uh, a lot about sovereign debt and how it works and how it doesn't work. We mix uh, law and economics here, and hopefully we come up with some truth. Okay. Okay. That, that would be remarkable. But uh, I will start off uh, with my puzzle, particularly the puzzle that has been increasing since the onset of COVID. So as some background, when I uh, taught my sovereign debt class in prior years, I would often tell students about the rule of thumb that folks at the IMF, uh, mostly economists, generally had for uh, developed countries and developing countries, which was that for developed countries, if you got to, in the range of a debt to GDP ratio of 80 to 90%, that, that was really uh, dangerous. And for developing countries, uh, emerging market countries, uh, significantly uh, lower debt to GDP ratios, even in the 50% range, could take you into a deep crisis. And I think Mark and I had both thought that when COVID hit and uh, debt stocks around the world were already high, we were going to hit one of the largest financial crises in the sovereign debt world that we had ever seen with investors refusing to uh, roll over these big debts that countries around the world, uh, including the US had accumulated. And we were ready uh, to study our new uh, crisis. And instead, everything got turned upside down the other way. It seems like our economist friends have completely changed their views. Instead, now they think that uh, you can have an infinite amount of debt and that will never hit a crisis. Again, at least not in countries like the US, Italy, and Japan, where debt to GDP ratios seem to keep uh, going up. So that's my long-winded question to get uh, you to tell us uh, how things stand here, because you've done a wonderful job in trying to explain in your blog and in your podcast the world of debt. <laughs> Whoa, thank you. Well, I'll try to not have too long-winded an answer uh, on that one. <laughs> Um, we got to start these rules of thumb, the 90% danger point, the 50% for developing countries, which usually means countries that aren't developing. Um, those uh, those are, are rough rules of thumb, but um, the, uh, the, the predictive um, ability for debt to, to tell you that a crisis is coming is, is in fact very low. Um, lots of countries can have big debts and and uh, not have problems and other countries can have crises with very small amounts i mean so let's go back to basic economics it's about your debt versus your ability to repay that debt uh, the us had 100 and something percent debt to gdp at the end of world war 2 well 
uh, we we uh, we did not default. We inflated a little bit, but we did not default. There wasn't a crisis till 1972. Uh, uh, why, why not? Well, because uh, we borrowed it for a good reason <laughs> to win World War II. Uh, we had a plan for paying it off. We were uh, paying, we had a good fiscal policy, uh, steady primary surpluses for the next 20 years. Uh, similarly, um, the UK borrowed like 200% of GDP, uh, the number isn't exactly right, in the Napoleonic Wars, and slowly paid it off over the 19th century. Uh, so there are, are many successes. And it's just the basics that, you know, comes from lending to your brother-in-law. <laughs> If there's a plan for paying it off, it's going to work, and people can borrow a lot. Uh, if there isn't a plan for paying it off, it falls apart. Now, what, what has changed? Um, one uh, important uh, thing that's changed in the world is um, the, uh, the the real interest rates are very low. So why have people changed their minds, sort of? It's that uh, now um, you can borrow, or at least until recently, you could borrow uh, very cheaply and not have to pay much interest. And, and like uh, many unfortunate households in the US, governments tend to think about borrowing not in terms of debt to GDP, but they tend to think about borrowing in terms of um, uh, what's the monthly payment. <laughs> and right now the monthly payments are, are very low. Now that leads uh, that that kind of thinking that, that that's a very simple, but that's the really simple observation behind so much of um, serious economists don't say there'll never be a crisis, but that the chances of a crisis are lower because they think these low real interest rates will continue for a long time. Well, like households borrowing a lot, uh, that, that's, that's a bet. And so what that puts us is in a situation where uh, the debt is sustainable as long as interest rates stay low, as long as we can keep rolling over this uh, debt and paying low interest rates. But we're on a kind of a cusp of instability. If interest rates go up, then the interest costs on the debt go up, and then all of a sudden what was sustainable is no longer sustainable. Uh, so that's, for example, what happened to Greece is it did not run out of money to pay its debts. Uh, Greece uh, lost the ability to roll over its debts. It couldn't find new investors willing to um, uh, buy bonds in order to pay back the old investors. Uh, at reasonable interest rates. And if it, if it paid the interest rates people wanted, then it would be bankrupt. And since everybody knew it would be bankrupt, then it would have to pay even higher interest rates and boom. So I think uh, it, that is the uh, danger uh, right now. And that, that's admitted by uh, serious people uh, who think about these issues. I think here of Olivier Blanchard, who's, who's uh, uh, the most serious person I know on the low debts are, are not a problem side. And it's, it's just a quantitative assessment of um, will that uh, happen or not. But I, uh, before I let you ask another question, <laughs> I want to remind our listeners, so we have seen many um, emerging or, or wish they were emerging countries, I don't, I don't like wishful thinking labels, uh, have debt crises and rollover crises. Um, we have not seen advanced country crises in a long time, but they do happen. Um, the US arguably had, had a debt crisis in 1972 when we went off of Bretton Woods. The uh, United Kingdom had several currency crises. And of course, you go back to before World War II and, and there were uh, sovereign debt uh, crises, inflations in uh, all of the advanced countries. And in fact, in the, the thousand years of lending money to governments, where, let me remind you, there's no bankruptcy court that you can go to to seize assets if they welch, this has usually ended badly. Uh, the French Revolution being primarily a, a debt crisis. Uh, so it's a, it's a, we have lived in a very unusual period of history that lending money to large governments who have no plans whatsoever uh, to pay it back is a great deal. John, Janet, um, my ears perked up a bit when you mentioned the sort of post-World War II era. And I'm wondering if I can just ask you to, to give us some historical analogs in the the modern history, I guess, of sovereign debt, where advanced economies really have uh, paid down debt significantly, that the episodes I can think of are all post-war, although I, I wouldn't say I'm anywhere close to an economic historian. And, and that gives me some fear, I guess, because those eras seem quite different from the present one, higher rates of growth and, and things like that that don't seem achievable today. So are there are there episodes from relatively recent history that give you optimism that 
this is even a feasible prospect that we're talking about? Uh, well, achievable how? Uh, <laughs> I think it's all paying, repaying our debts would be easily achievable. Uh, it just needs a little bit of political sanity. Uh, but yes, um, the uh, most recent, the, the U.S. in uh, starting in uh, the, the 1980s embarked, it's interesting, it, it was a tax cut, but it was a cut in marginal tax rates that broadened the base in, in 1982 and 1986, together with deregulation, uh, led to an economic boom. So really, where, where governments get money to repay debts is not by raising tax rates, because uh, the revenue is tax rate times income. And it's much easier to operate on the income part than to operate on the tax rate part, because when you raise tax rates, that lowers GDP and incomes. So the U.S., and, and we don't have to fight about just why, but the, what happened in the U.S. starting in the um, early 1980s was a prolonged economic boom, a tax reform. And by the 1990s, uh, serious economists were writing papers by the end of the 1990s. What are we going to do when the U.S. has paid back all its debts? <laughs> Um, the World War II, uh, now what, what happened in 2000 is primarily not just an explosion of borrowing, but a slowdown in growth. Uh, and that's, that's really, um, we'll get there. This, this is the thing that worries me most about, about lots of things. Yes, World War II, the post-World War II debt, we did um, successfully pay off by, uh, largely by an unprecedented, in all of human history, there has never been a period of economic growth like 1945 to uh, slowing down, and uh, but with, with the slowdown in the 70s, nonetheless, to, to 2000. Uh, and um, uh, that had a lot to do with it, uh, along with fiscal policy that was, um, you know, that growth came in, a, in, by today's standards, a very deregulated economy. Um, and uh, we don't have that anymore. <laughs> we don't have the high growth. We don't have the innovative uh, deregulated economy of that time. And we don't have the sober fiscal policy at that time. We, we did not have a European welfare state with American taxes so that uh, the US was running steady uh, surpluses that whole time. And you're right, that uh, configuration, people say, oh, don't worry, we paid off the World War II debt, which we also did by some inflation and a lot of financial repression. You weren't allowed to buy stocks abroad. There's a lot of buy government bonds going on there. But we don't have that configuration now. Uh, so to say we paid off World War II, World War II was over and the reason for spending was over. Now our reason for spending is, is transfers and social programs and that's only getting bigger. Uh, after World War II, there was strong economic growth. Now we have slow economic growth. Um, so uh, all, all of those uh, features are, are not there now, uh, which, yeah, that was, now what do we have that they didn't have? We, we had until recently uh, very low interest rates. So the U.S. government uh, could borrow at very low rates, uh, which allowed it to service the debt and let the debt grow large without an immediate, um, without an immediate problem to its cash flows. And the question is, how long is that uh, lovely state of affairs going to last? John, if I may uh, take us into the world of economic theory that is perilous for us, since we're not economists, has the thinking among economists about debt dynamics in the context of particular growth rates. I remember uh, from your blog post uh, and some of your podcasts, you're talking about Olivier Blanchard's uh, uh, R and G uh, and uh, um, uh, Larry Summers talking about uh, secular stagnation. I'm not quite sure what that is, uh, but has the thinking about sort of the dynamics of spending and the size of uh, a debt stock that you can have changed fundamentally? And do we, are we rethinking what we know about monetary theory? Oh boy, you ask these big questions. Um, well, let's put monetary theory on hold for just a second because um, monetary theory is, is, is related to, but not the same thing really as can we, basically monetary theory just says, look, if you can't get, pay back your debts, you can inflate them away rather than default on them. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think we had, we had um, guests uh, very early 
uh, on our podcast come and tell us about modern monetary theory and how we should not be worried. But they, they didn't really explain what it was, and we have not yet understood it. So, so let's, uh, let's put on hold, um, but come back to modern monetary theory and fiscal theory of the price level and all that interesting stuff. Uh, but let me answer your first question about uh, Summers and Blanchard, are less than G, secular stagnation, and so forth. Uh, so I'll, I'll recommend Olivier Blanchard uh, gave a, um, a presidential address to the American Economic Association, which I think will be um, justly famous or infamous, all depending on how it works out. <laughs> um, uh, and, and the point, there's not a difference in theory. The economic theory is old. The question is where, um, which parameter values, what, what, uh, what are the uh, current configurations that they allow us to do? Now, the story is not very uh, complicated at first glance. Uh, suppose you could, the government can borrow at 1%, and suppose that the economy will grow at 2%, and that that will last forever. Well, then the government can borrow some money at 1% and never pay it back, just roll over the debt. What happens? Uh, same thing that happens to you if you borrow on your credit card and you never pay it back. It just grows at the interest rate. So that means the debt grows at the rate R, 1% a year. But if the economy, uh, G, grows at 2% a year, the economy is growing faster than the debt. So the ratio of debt to GDP steadily falls. And um, as long as the debt is lower than GDP, really what matters is debt, is the debt lower than the size of available tax revenues and tax revenue scales with GDP. Uh, so that um, the government can in fact borrow money and never pay it back. Wow. <laughs> now, that's not a different theory. That's just, you know, maybe we're living in a world where R is less than G rather than a world where R is greater than G. Uh, now, uh, quickly, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's a lot of asterisks on that, because if you take that seriously, if the government can borrow and never pay back its debts, why should you and I ever pay back our debts? We are citizens in a democracy. Why should the government not borrow money and pay off your mortgage? Uh, and never pay it back? Why should it not pay off your student loans and never pay it back? Why should it not bail out all the pensions and never pay it back? Indeed, why should any of us ever work or pay taxes? Uh, the government should just borrow money, send us checks, and we can all stay home and order things on Amazon. Well, you can see that's not going to work. And Olivia Blanchard sees that's not going to work too. So the uh, R less than G argument is in fact much more subtle and relies on, let's call them frictions, um, which I don't want to get into, uh, and, and Olivier lays those out. Does it? To what extent does it work? What's the limit, uh, and so forth? Now, of course, the danger is is what if the R <laughs> rises greater than G? And there's a lot of technical dangers, which which I don't want to uh, get into today. Um, now, uh, uh, Larry Summers's point uh, was uh, different. He uh, was arguing that we are in a state of perpetual lack of demand. Uh, these are related points, but, but therefore that borrowing money, even if you had to pay it back, would be a good thing uh, on the Keynesian idea that borrowing money and then giving it to people is the key to economic growth. And that's the form of secular stagnation he was talking about. Uh, I'm dubious about, uh, as many of us are, that Keynesian economics applies over decades, uh, that prices are sticky for that long uh, and so forth. But to Larry's credit, when the facts change, Larry changed his mind. So he, he's now, he quickly is, is now, um, I don't know if he's abandoning secular stagnation, but he's certainly abandoning the idea that the government needs to borrow more money because we borrowed money and now we're uh, deep into inflation territory. Uh, and Larry, uh, to his credit, quickly uh, changed his mind and said, no, 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 stop borrowing money and, and throwing it around. Uh, um, can so, I yes, please. I just wanted just to outline, those, those are the ideas. Now we can talk about them. So um, it just the 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 theory of I, I really like this idea that you know if we borrow more uh, and spend more we could grow more that's my simplistic understanding and it it does remind me of the standard story that emerging market finance ministers uh, typically would tell uh, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department, uh, which was, uh, if, if you just help us uh, reduce our debt stock, we will grow out of our existing debt. And uh, the U.S. Treasury was typically very skeptical, as, as were the, was the IMF, uh, about 
this this prospect of growing out of debt, but it, it seems seems like some of these theories uh, have uh, bear some family resemblance to these ideas. I mean, it, just going back to you know your first two examples, and maybe I'm not making the right connection, but uh, you talked about. U.S. post-war and uh, the Napoleonic Wars, the France and the Napoleonic Wars. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, the, the old notion of government debt was that you borrowed a lot when you had to fight wars or you had huge crises where uh, tax revenues could not cover what you needed. You, you would then win the war and uh, then you would you, you would start growing and you would be able to pay off your debt. We don't, I mean, now we just borrow and roll over. Uh, and so at least that, that's, that's what I understand uh, is going on. Uh, we borrow and roll over until markets make us pay it back. <laughs> and the question is, how painful is that going to be? Um, now, I want to distinguish, uh, there's, there's a couple of important, so in this plea, uh, you know, forgive our debts and we'll get growing again. Uh, one is supply versus demand. Uh, is it true that you can an economy will grow if you just borrow money and throw throw that money at people uh, so they can buy stuff? Um, uh, well, that's a, that's sort of the Keynesian deficient demand story, which is typically not true, I would say, of most efficient uh, ex, uh, most emerging markets in debt crises. Typically, they are borrowing and spending like crazy. Typically, there's already inflation, currency controls, a problem of too much demand. So uh, even the IMF today is back to, oh, we need to, uh, we need to increase social spending in the name of inequality and so forth. But typically, these governments have, have, not, have been using the borrowed money to, in very inefficient ways uh, to basically send checks to their political cronies uh, so that doing more of that is unlikely to grow the economy. Uh, similarly, on, on the debt question, it, it is always true. Yeah, if, if I didn't have to pay my, back my debts, well, my budget constraint has increased. So, you know, I ought to be able to do more of everything. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, uh, is a government that got into trouble on paying back its last debt a good deal uh, on, on paying back other things? In fact, I think the U.S. under Alexander Hamilton is the great counterexample. Uh, after the Revolutionary War, there was a great uh, temptation to simply default on our debt and not have this horrible debt service um, hurting the republic for the rest of, uh, the rest of time. Uh, Alexander Hamilton said, no, we're going to assume them into the federal government and we're going to pay them back. Uh, and and uh, even though there's a debt service weighing on the republic, well, what happened? That strengthened the federal government, that made our institutions stronger so we could raise actual tax revenues to pay back our debts, that made our credit overseas fantastically good so that when the time came, the U.S. was able to borrow again. And people, in fact, people believed us almost too much because uh, the U.S. was then able to borrow a whole bunch of money and put it into canals that promptly went bankrupt when the railroad <laughs> was invented. Uh, so uh, it's a uh, it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky proposition that we should simply when someone is in trouble we should simply forgive their debt and that will let them spend more money on the same stuff that got them in trouble in the first place and somehow that's going to help their growth. Well, John, let's take a, a short break. And then when we come back, maybe I can get you to talk a little bit about whether the true size of the U.S. debt might be quite a bit larger than official statistics would suggest. Um, but uh, let's take a short break first. John, can I ask you to, to clarify a little bit of confusion that I've, I have been having lately, which is that I'm not at all convinced that there is not a quite strong implicit guarantee by the federal government at least in the United States of a, a whole bunch of debt that's currently off balance sheet, uh, maybe municipal debts, maybe state debt. Um, I guess I'm just, I'm wondering uh, the extent to which we should be thinking about these kinds of sub-sovereign units in calculating the true debt burden that a country like the United States has. Yeah, our debt burden is not. Uh, so what do we got? We got the debt that we promised to pay off. <laughs> uh, then we've got the promises uh, that we have made. So our, our current situation is uh, five, roughly 5% 5 of GDP uh, primary deficit uh, is the normal times. Uh, that's a lot of money. 
uh, deficit, and that's how much the U.S. is spending over taxes, mostly on entitlements. Uh, then every 10 years, there's a crisis, and we just uh, spend another 25% of GDP debt, and then Social Security and, and Medicare are going to really kick in. And uh, we have made huge promises that we currently have no way of paying for. So Larry Kotlikoff likes to add that all up and take a present value and get numbers like 70 trillion to 200 trillion uh, above the current, uh, I think it's about 25 trillion of actual debt. So there's, before I even answer your question about the contingent liabilities, <laughs> there's the question about how do you think about all these promises that uh, we have no way of, of eventually keeping. Larry likes to think of them as debt. I, I like to say, think of it as, you know, somehow we're not going to make, we're not going to keep those promises. And the only question is when we tell people and how. Now to your question, there are also what I like to call contingent uh, liabilities. There is the amount the government is spending, the amount the government has promised to spend, but there is also, you are exactly right, all sorts of debts out there that the government has guaranteed, and those don't show up on the books uh, anywhere, uh, either explicitly or implicitly. Uh, so will the government let the state of Illinois go bankrupt? Uh, will the, the federal government let the Chicago teachers unions go bankrupt? Uh, those, those, you know, dramatically underfunded pensions are sitting there. Uh, will the government eventually bail out student loans? Uh, one of the great student loans used to be something that worked really well. The government took it over, promising great inefficiencies. And now we have, I think the number is close to a trillion dollars of debt that it, we're just deciding who's going to eventually end up paying it back. Uh, likely, once it's forgiven, that's the same thing as the government uh, taking it on. Um, Housing, uh, almost all mortgages in the United States are the credit is guaranteed uh, by Fannie and Freddie. So that's an explicit credit guarantee. And should we all default on our mortgages? Uncle Sam's picking it up. And of course, uh, every crisis now is met by larger and larger bailouts and, and credit guarantees. Uh, in the last crisis, the airlines were explicitly bailed out. Uh, the Fed decreed, uh, they put a whatever it takes guarantee that they would buy any corporate debt to make sure the prices didn't go down. Uh, so the, the basically, I think we all assume that in the event of a financial crisis, the bailouts are coming, those bailouts all go onto the, uh, onto the balance sheet. So yeah, uh, when we think about debt, uh, there are contingent liabilities. And when we think about how this might end, when you want to be a sort of a, a free market economist and have nightmares at two o'clock in the morning, there's a story that comes out, oh, don't worry, you can see it coming, interest rates might go up, we'll have time, Congress can get together and reform things. No, no, no. Uh, debt comes in a crisis and, and it typically comes when a bunch of things go bad at once. A wave of sovereign defaults abroad, people are starting to sell treasuries, Italy finally goes under. And then that triggers all the contingent liabilities. Uh, so everybody comes calling at once and, and that's when things fall apart. So John, uh, I think we had talked, you wanted to clarify uh, some of my confused question about RNG. Oh yeah, let me just finish. finish. So the, uh, the story I told was uh, interest rate is 1%, growth is 2%, that lasts forever. Way, isn't that great? The government can borrow and never pay it back. Uh, one danger of that, which we already talked about, was the interest rates might rise, and then you have to pay it back all of a sudden. So that's a danger number one. But the big, my big problem with this is uh, that buys you one percent of GDP, right? If R is R is one and G is two, <laughs> then the difference is one, and you can, in fact, uh, the government can run a steady one percent of GDP deficit off this difference of R minus G. We don't have 1% deficits, we have 5% deficits. So the big answer to this uh, whole low interest rate thing is it, it's um, the, the bill collector is coming for the mortgage and, and you found some pennies in the couch, uh, but it's not anything like what the, uh, what the amount that you're in debt. So John, I'm thinking back to the Greek crisis and th this connects a little bit, actually a lot bit to Mark's question, if I remember correctly, one of the triggers for the market not being willing to roll over the Greek sovereign debt that it had been doing uh, eagerly for a very long time was that Eurostat decided to include in the Greek debt statistics the debt of a bunch of uh, Greek state-owned companies where 
those companies had not even been able to make a coupon payments for many, many years. And so Eurostat finally said, yeah, this is, these are just debts of the state. And the debt stock balloons and there's a crisis. So Mark and I have started trying to look at municipal debt in the US. And you know, if I just open up one of the databases where we have our debt contracts, there is a gigantic amount of municipal debt that seems to be issued on a daily basis. And most of it issued in ways that circumvent state debt limits. And my cynical view is that we, we don't have a clue as to how much government debt is actually out there. And someday somebody like you or your graduate students is going to try to make calculations that people pay attention to because uh, I, I, I know some people have been trying to make those calculations. And could that just be enough to send us into a full-on crisis? Yes. <laughs> You're never going to get an answer that short out of me. Uh, uh, you know, as I look at the history of crises, you, you, you noticed some of the common elements. The, uh, the books are cooked. The accounting is shady. And the crisis comes when people realize that the books were cooked. Uh, and, and in Greece, that was, I, I gather, now here we, you guys will know better than me, uh, there, was, there was a lot of accounting shadiness that came up all at once. Now, of course, uh, this is why I worry that the next, what does it take? A crisis always happens where you're least expecting it and where the books are all cooked and there's a lot of debt that can't be repaid. Um, that's government now, in, in my mind. Uh, people are all uh, concerned about repeating the mortgage crisis, but um, it's the government debt crisis where you have all those uh, ingredients. Um, so yes, there's this phenomenon, zombie lending, extend and pretend the natural thing for a government to do uh, when there's a, a problem is to just uh, keep the banks open, keep the, you know, pretend the thing is going, cover that this is this, the, the tension between uh, flows and present values. Uh, if you can keep sort of the cash payments going and, and uh, hide the fact that there's no eventual plan, you can keep things going for a very long time until, of course, uh, we all find out about it and, and the accounting blows up. Uh, so yes, uh, and, and you're also right to point, there's a lot of uh, clever devices for circumventing uh, debt rules going on here. Uh, and that's in municipal bonds. That's also in, in pensions, dramatically underfunded pensions uh, that you know assume that they're underfunded even if they make their rate of return targets of 10%, which is not gonna happen. Uh, that's not an exact number, but they assume very high rate of return uh, targets. Uh, so they're basically roll over, roll over and hope that somebody comes along and bails out or, or something great, uh, great happens. People keep saying, well, what's, you know, bond markets, U.S. debt, why aren't bond markets worried? Well, bond market, Greek debt was a great deal in 2006 until all of a sudden it was, you know, they had, they were paying very low interest rates too until all of a sudden they weren't. That's the kind of the, the mechanics of, of a crisis. So yeah, let's put it together. Uh, accounting shenanigans, shady accounting, um, uh, lots and lots, lots of uh, rollover, extend and pretend, then all of a sudden uh, the books are opened. Now, if a huge bailout can come, uh, then you can avoid the crisis. That's basically what we've done in the US. Uh, the savings and loan crisis, the tequila crisis, the uh, emerging markets crisis of the 1990s, the 2008, uh, the great 2008 crisis. Uh, basically, there was exactly this kind of buildup of debt, rolling over, pretending something's there, shady accounting, it all blows up. And Uncle Sam comes to the rescue uh, with floods and floods of money and everyone gets bailed out and then we, then we keep on going. Uh, but what happens when it's Uncle Sam himself who's in trouble? Mm. Now, now you're Greece and there's no Germany to come bail you out. So, so John, I don't, I don't want to miss the opportunity, especially since we're talking in part about the risks that uh, come up in connection with the need to roll over your debt. But, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you to talk about your um, the idea you have been writing and talking about recently about uh, the issuance of perpetuities. So, you know, as I understand it, for reasons that I'm sure have some historical roots that are unclear to me, the U.S. government is constantly rolling over its debt, you know, in a two-year cycle or something like that, creating this recurring and quite 
unnecessary rollover risk. And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about that and about the pros and cons of trying to mitigate it by issuing much longer term or even perpetual debt. Yeah, so this is an interesting fact. Um, you know, you, any of our listeners who's taken out a mortgage, you get your choice of the floating rate mortgage or the fixed rate mortgage. And the US government chose the floating rate mortgage because it's a percent or two lower so long as interest rates don't go up. If interest rates go up, then you get a big bill from the bank. And that's exactly uh, the situation that the US is in uh, because we, we roll over short-term debt. And the Fed has, to the extent that the Treasury has tried to borrow a little more long-term debt, the Fed bought up all that long-term debt and, and issued overnight debt in return, uh, even more shortening the maturity structure. Uh, short-term debt is the key ingredient of all financial crises. I think to the, Doug Diamond gets the credit for that. Uh, that saying that that's true. All, financial crises always come when when you can't roll over short-term debt and, and then you're suddenly uh, bankrupt. So, what the U.S. government could, uh, if the Greek government had borrowed entirely by very long-term bonds, and then there's an accounting scandal, what happens? Well, the price of those bonds fall, but the Greek Greek government said, "Well, we can still pay the coupons, so uh, you know we're we're good for a couple of years. You, you don't have an instant crisis." Similarly for the US, um, if uh, interest rates go up sharply and people start worrying about the US government's willingness or ability to repay its debt, if you've borrowed very long-term, then the, the interest costs of the debt don't change. You just have to pay off the interest that you promised on that debt, but not the new higher interest. So the interest costs don't feed back into uh, making the debt uh, crisis uh, even worse. So that's uh, why I've long argued the US should borrow, even though it costs a little more, it's like buying house insurance. Uh, do you have house insurance? Yes, your house hasn't gone burned down in the last 10 years. Well, that was a waste of money, but you still buy the house insurance. So uh, long-term debt is a little more expensive, but it is, um, it's rollover risk insurance. And uh, I'm, I, I got in a debate with Larry Summers about this in a, a Brookings uh, uh, panel a while ago. Uh, 10 years ago, Larry said, no, 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 go short term because it's, it's so much cheaper. But he's just changed his mind and said, no, 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 now, now's the time. Uh, there's, I, I can smell the smoke and there's an insurance salesman at the front door. Let's, let's take that insurance and, and get the long-term debt. Uh, again, so that if interest rates go up, then the, then the interest costs just are not a concern. There's no crisis. There's no, we need to go to the markets and roll over the debt, you know, 10 trillion every two years or else, you know, the crisis comes immediately. Now, you could, there's a lot of ways to do these are kind of two separate issues. There's a lot of ways to borrow long term. I would also like it if the US cleaned up its uh, debt um, operations. We have a sort of a, a 19th century uh, debt structure, and uh, we're living in the 21st century. But actually, there's this 19th century idea, which is beautiful. Uh, Queen Victoria financed the, uh, the, financed the 19th century this way. Uh, debt that is perpetual. In other words, uh, you give the government a hundred bucks, you get like two bucks a year back forever. And better yet, if that two bucks a year is indexed uh, to the CPI with no principal payment. That is of course the ultimate in long-term debt. And the other great thing about it is that it is it never needs to be rolled over. You're never making a principal payment and asking new investors to come in uh, and roll over that debt. And as a result, instead of the nearly 300 securities they have outstanding now, you can have one security outstanding. So the markets would be much more liquid uh, if there was perpetual debt as well. So perpetual debt's a great idea for all sorts of reasons. It, by the way, our debt goes, the dealer banks get the bid-ask spread on the entire US government debt every time we rolled it over. So they kind of like the current system. Uh, they, they would lose a lot of money. Uh, but uh, it would both lengthen the, the maturity of the debt, insulating us from debt crises. It would be a great security for consumers to have. Uh, it's the foundation of a, of a long-term portfolio. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's, it's, just, it's a much more efficient security as well as one of many ways to lengthen the debt. But you don't have to, you could lengthen the maturity structure just by issuing 30-year or 40-year bonds. The US Treasury could uh, start doing fixed for floating swaps, which is exactly what every two-bit bank does when they want to link the maturity structure. Uh, so they're related issues, but not the same issue. So John, the, is there a, you mentioned the, the dealer banks and their incentives and the US government's, the clear benefit that it gets by having increased maturities in this 
during a time of very, very low interest rates. Uh, I mean, Germany was looking at negative interest rates. Uh, why is there a political economy story for why it's not being done? Or are the given that interest rates seem to be rising, are people at Treasury calling you and saying, uh, it, it is time, we are, we are ready? I mean, you said Larry Summers has come around, but he's not in Treasury anymore. But are the people in Treasury uh, calling? And I guess more plausibly, uh, are other countries like Italy, uh, that seems like it has far too low interest rates right now. Their rates are almost uh, at the German rates, and uh, I would say unjustifiably so, given uh, how bad things are in that economy. I mean, they should be borrowing 100-year uh, with 100-year bonds. Is that happening anywhere? Do you know? Um, so Italy actually does have, uh, I don't have the numbers handy, but it has a good deal longer government debt than the US does. Uh, they're, they're not unaware of this uh, issue. And of course, Italy's rates are low because everybody assumes that the ECB is still going to do whatever it takes to keep those rates low. Uh, so those are there, there's a almost an explicit put option from the European Central Bank, uh, if not the Germans, that uh, Italy will not uh, have a, a Greek-style rollover crisis. So, you know, you're not you're not buying uh, bonds in Italy. You're buying bonds in the European Central Bank. Uh, now they are they are now realizing they have a bit of a problem that if they raise interest rates. Those Italian interest costs will will go up, and and uh, they're they're holding the bag. Uh, why is why are we not you know economists with smart ideas uh, who think the government should do things the way they do things? Uh, it, it's a bad idea to start casting aspersions uh, about why the government uh, doesn't do it. In in talks I've had with people who do this, basically the problem of the U.S. government is is its great virtue, dispersed authority. Uh, the Treasury doesn't really think of itself as managing interest rate risk to the budget. Uh, one treasury official, now this is about 10 years ago, but one treasury official said, um, uh, when I asked this question, said, that's not our job. Congress gives us a deficit and we try to finance that where we can see it cheaper and, and managing interest rate risk to the budget, that's, that's not our job. Whose job is it? <laughs> And there's this strange thing where I, then I asked, well, the Fed is buying up all your long-term bonds and turning into short-term bonds. Who's in charge of the maturity structure here? And they said, well, you know, that's the Fed's job. So you kind of have the, the husband is going down and buying the, uh, the short-term bonds and the wife goes down to the bank and says, no, turn those back into long-term bonds. And there's no one really in, in charge of the, of the whole thing. So I, I just don't think that uh, this concept that we need to think hard about interest risk uh, to the to the budget is uh, is strong in either uh, in either Treasury uh, or Fed, and, and in fact, you know, the Treasury did make some statements earlier in the year about how don't worry about deficits because interest costs are low. So they're just kind of thinking of it as low and thinking of the short term debt as cheaper. And um, you know, if you just do statistical modeling, I've been wrong for ten years. <laughs> I said ten years ago you should buy long term debt, you should issue long term debt, even though it's one percent more than short term debt. And on a 10-year basis, that would have been terrible advice because the house didn't burn down. <laughs> Interest rates just kept going down. Uh, Short-term rates have been lower than long-term rates the whole time. So for 10 years, the U.S. government uh, you know, made a good deal out of it. So it takes a very far-sighted uh, official to say, um, you know, we, the Treasury, are going to worry about interest rate risk to the U.S. government. We're going we're to deliberately make it costly to borrow, but we're going to buy some uh, insurance in doing that. Insurance that may not benefit us at all while we're in office, but may only come, you know, with some vague debt crisis that some goofy economists at Hoover worried about uh, 10 years from now. So, uh, you know, if, if you're looking for long-term planning and sanity in any uh, American economic and financial policy, it's hard to find, and that would be uh, a, hard, a hard one to expect. So um, uh, I, I, I look at it uh, uh, sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't want to cast any accusations about, uh, about what's going on. Political economy is, is complicated. Well, John, that, is not, um, that does not fill me with optimism. Um, not that I, not that that's your job to fill me with optimism, but it, it sounds like there are lots of failures, both big and small that one can point to. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you, we have some, some precedent for a U.S. government default and restructuring, of course. And I, I'm wondering whether you have any 
greater sense of optimism about the ability to manage such a thing in the future. If um, fiscal prudence is not something that uh, you expect to see and the debt structure remains um, as it is and there's all these latent rollover risks and all of these contingent liabilities, it's not impossible to imagine a scenario where you reach a uh, inflate or restructure decision, and and I could imagine, uh, I could imagine some of the basic contours of what a restructuring of U.S. government debt would look like. But I'm wondering what your view is on that. Is that a cataclysmic, a scenario that happens only in some really cataclysmic state of affairs? Is it something that can be managed? What does a U.S. government debt default and restructuring look like? Good question. I, I must say, just finishing up on the last one first, um, the opportunity to borrow long is, I think, now largely gone. Everybody knows interest rates are going up. If the U.S. said uh, 25 trillion bucks, we want to change it all to 30-year bonds because we want the interest rate protection, that, that's like um, you know calling up your insurance agent and saying, I, I want fire insurance right now. Honey, pass me the extinguisher. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure the chance is there anymore. Also, it's not the first order problem. Uh, you know, you look at the chaos of American uh, government and financial policy, um, lengthening the maturity structure is about number 30 on the, on the list of problems. But let, let's get to, uh, you know, the nightmare scenarios of what happens uh, when things go bad, when, and, and inevitably when it poses as a crisis. Let me, uh, you know, let, let's think about uh, China invades Taiwan, Russia invades Ukraine, Something blows up in the Middle East. Um, you know, some new pandemic comes along. There's another crisis. Uh, Uncle Sam needs another five, ten trillion bucks to uh, to spread money all over the place. That uh, all the municipal defaults that we've been talking about happen. A deep recession, and all of a sudden, markets say, "Nope, uh, you know, we're done with you guys. We want to put our our money somewhere else." Uh, what happens then? Now, the you know, uh, when governments uh, here, you will will have much more historical experience than I do, but eventually governments hit debt crises and then they have to reform. And, and uh, our debt right now is, you know, what's unsustainable will eventually not be sustained. <laughs> so our, our debt will either be uh, paid off or it will be defaulted or it will be inflated away. One of those things has to happen. Uh, <laughs> we will either uh, raise taxes or reform spending until the two come into line. And the only question is, is how fast. In fact, for the US, um, our problem is really not debt. Uh, our problem is an unsustainable fiscal future. If we were to default on all the debt, do, do what you said emerging countries want to do, give us a debt forgiveness, wipe out all the debt, that doesn't solve the US fiscal problem. Because then next year, our government wants to borrow 5% of GDP to spend more than it takes in. And especially if you just inflated away or defaulted on all your debt, there's no one going to give you that money. Uh, so even wiping out the debt would not solve the fiscal problem. Conversely, if the U.S. returned to a, you know, a great tax reform that was going to raise revenue at lower rates with great economic growth, a, a spending entitlement reform that helped people who need help without throwing money down rat holes, back to 1% to 2% of GDP structural surpluses, the world would be rolling over to send us money. <laughs> uh, debt would be no, no problem whatsoever. So, uh, you know, the, the U.S. must uh, either reform or, or fall to pieces. And the only question is whether our political system is, is capable of reform without setting off revolution. Uh, you know, the French Revolution started as a, a very sensible reform. Uh, the government was bankrupt and the king said, well, we need to get our taxes under control and, and figure out how to do this. And then things spiraled out of control from there. And, and that's the dangers that the American political system is not capable of the sort of sober reforms. Look, any bipartisan commission can tell you what to do in, in 10 minutes. They've been at it for 20 years. Uh, this is not a, a hard economic problem. But when I look at uh, our political system, you know, I do, I do worry. Uh, so um, explicit default on US treasury debt is not unthinkable. Uh, it has happened before. Uh, we talked earlier about the gold clauses. Uh, the U.S. had promised to repay in gold. The U.S. said, nope, we're not repaying in gold in the 1930s. Supreme Court said, well, that's a terrible idea, but you're allowed to do it. So we have defaulted before. State and local governments have defaulted many times before. And as I listened to the political wins, uh, you know, just recently, last summer, we were talking about the debt limit. 
And everybody, right, left, and center, said, well, if we hit the debt limit, there'll be a default on treasuries. Janet Yellen said this uh, explicitly. That is simply not true. Uh, when the US hits the debt limit, it can't borrow new money, but there's nothing that stops it from prioritizing repaying old money over everything else. Uh, Alexander Hamilton would have said, debt limit, schmet limit. Uh, I am going to keep the full faith and credit of the US Treasury uh, above anything else. I don't think our current Congress will do that. They'll say, no, no, uh, my social security checks are way more important than paying money to rich fat cats on Wall Street. So I, I, an explicit haircut is certainly within the realm of possibility. And it would be a financial catastrophe, I think. Uh, US Treasury debt is very special in the financial system. It's, it's considered default-free. It's the safest thing around. We have all this exorbitant privilege, this money-like ability. You can, uh, you can leave it as collateral for any loan without question, so on and so forth. Even a technical default would throw that uh, chaos in the system. And, and it would start the goodbye exorbitant privilege, goodbye the dollar as the world standard. Uh, so I think that would be, uh, and of course the, the other possibility was what we're doing right now, you can get inflated away. And that's the easy one uh, for a government as a whole to do, to simply, the, the, the modern monitors to write, the US in this one thing, the US does not have the default, the US can print up money to repay its debt. It's, it's hard, there's uh, in legal and institutional constraints stopping uh, monetization of debts, but, but we know how to get around those. Uh, and so inflating away the debt, which is economically the same as default, uh, will be tempting in a crisis like that too. And, and I think that's, uh, if you can get around the legal limits on inflation, that's the most likely thing to happen. A sharp, in, when a crisis comes, that we get a sharp inflation, as that's never happened in the US, but it's happened all over the world. So this, this is not a new economic mechanism and we are not exempt. People seem to think that, you know, everything that happens around the world will never happen to us. No, economics is the same everywhere. John, thank you so much. We have kept you over the time that we said we were going to keep I think you. I talked over the time that I was invited to. <laughs> thank you. It's been a great pleasure. This, this was so fun and so educational. And our students are going to love it. And we loved it. And I'm so excited that they will get to hear you. And then I can tell stories about uh -oh. class. Uh -oh. so, <laughs> they're all good stories. You, you were the cool young came just came back from California professor. So that that that, now, was, that that's my memory of you. And then you went back to California. I, I owe you. I came from Chicago. Actually, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, so Chicago's deep in my blood. But I owe you and, and uh, generations of students deep thanks because I only learned any economics. I didn't learn much in grad school. I was out in California having fun. But having to, to stay up at night in order to face students like you in the morning and figure it out about three hours before you was what taught me all the economics I know. So uh, <laughs> I, just, I owe it to you. Thank you.